we want to fulfill the great commission and go and make disciples. For those of us who get grace, love Jesus, we want to pour our cup into others. But if we lined up a hundred men and women listening to this from a hundred different churches who love Jesus, get grace, want to pour their cup into others and said, how's your disciple making going? We would say terrible because we don't know what to do and who to do it with. Welcome everyone to Seek, Go, Create. This is where we challenge conventional definitions of success, explore stories of transformation in business, leadership, ministry, all kinds of things. We mash it all together. We're going to be doing that today in today's episode. We have the honor. I'm going to be interviewing God. This up in Dawsonville, Georgia, from my old home state, Robbie Angle. He's the president and CEO of TrueFace. Got a diverse background. We'll talk more about that counseling, aid work, ministry has a wealth of wisdom. Now he's running this organization. Got a lot of experience he's going to bring the conversation. So we're going to have fun talking about lots of things, leadership, business, ministry. Robbie, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Thanks, Tim. Super excited to get on this thing. And I'm excited for where this goes today. I'm ready for anything. Are you really ready for anything? We'll see if I'm actually ready for anything, but I'm feeling ready. It's like one of these things we say, it's like, I'm ready for anything, but it's like, there's some things I'm not sure I'm ready for. I'm not ready for some stuff, but I want to say this, man, you got one of the coolest names ever. I'm about to get to my first question. Robbie Angle sounds like you could front a rock band. Did you ever consider that when you were growing up or was ministry and business all your stuff? I appreciate that. I have zero musical talent in my body. And my full name is actually Robert Bruce Angle III. So my dad pulled me aside when I was in eighth grade and he's, hey, are you, do you Rob, Robert, Bob, do you, are you ready to go into your grown up name? And I was like, nah, man, I'm not selling out. I'm staying Robbie with a Y, even though it, one of my mentors was like, Robert Bruce Angle III, you need to own the strength of that name. And as a firstborn son, eight Enneagram, high drive, high achiever, Robert Bruce Engel III fits a little bit more than Robbie, but Robbie keeps me in my seven wing having a little bit more fun. Man, you got all kinds of ways you could go. You could go like the uh, the wealthy Robert Bruce. I'm thinking Batman. You could, do, but then I like Robbie Engel. It sounds like a name that might be on the side of one of these big old huge casinos in Vegas and you've got one of these illusion magic shows, you know, I Robbie Engel. Thank you, Tim. I received that. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> oh yeah. Now that we've had fun with that, let's, let's get to my real first question. Not that those aren't cool things, but my real first question is let's just pretend I'm somewhere in Dawsonville, Georgia, and we bump into each other and Maybe we don't really have context, not a business setting, not a church setting, just out and about. And I ask you what you do. What do you typically tell people when they ask, Robbie, what do you do? You want the real question or the professional question? Why don't you give me both and we'll judge them. We'll give a score on each one. How about that? All right. What do I do? I spend every day trying to trust and follow the way of Jesus. And that looks like being a husband to Emily for 18 years, a dad to eight kids in eight years, six boys, two girls. And 
as part of the body of Christ, my specific identity, I think God has made me as an activator. Mm. So that's the personal one. Professionally, I lead a 27-year-old ministry that develops grace-based relational discipleship resources to equip people to experience deeper relationships with God and others. So it's interesting. I'm glad you did that because it gives me a little bit of a trigger for something. I don't really like that question, what do you do? Because it's really anti who we are in many ways. It speaks to titles and things like that. But you gave me two, so I'm going to dig a little bit. We're not buddies, but we're about to either be buddies or frenemies or something like that. Why, why do you think we have two? Why, why do we need to? Why do we live that way? How's that for jumping in the deep end right out of the gate? I, I don't know shallow end very well, so I love the deep end. We have two because it's societally more appropriate that we care about what people do professionally because that gives us indicators for how to classify them and figure out what will help us in our relationship with people. So what do you do? I, I wonder, I'm, this is all new thought. I'm thinking out loud as an extroverted thinker. I think we ask people because it's societal and it helps me know what you can do for me in some ways. And it's just an easier classification for identity which is the source of most of our issues as humans, that it is the source of a lot of our identity because it's easier to grab on purpose, fulfillment, the longings of our heart through what we do because we spend the most amount of our time there. And it's harder to get clarity on the nebulous relational dynamics that we really long for that I described. So probably just easier. I think it is easier. Maybe the path of least resistance or I've thought about it myself because I do similar. So I'm not sitting here asking a question that I'm quote unquote, I'm so virtuous and I've got it figured out. But I wonder at times if I'm seeking acceptance, I wonder at times if I'm trying not to be antagonistic, I wonder at times if I'm skirting this, am I a citizen of God's kingdom or am I a citizen of the world? Which is it? And so those are some questions. I don't have the answers by the way, but any thoughts on any of those? Yeah, I think. You're normal. Congratulations. And it's if it, it's a I think you're talking about a normal tension to manage. And Paul said, I'm a I'm an apostle. Like it, there there is confidence in who God made us and the roles. And that's not something to be ashamed of, but it gets to the underlying tension of how we see ourselves, how we see others. And this is the good stuff. This is the identity stuff that I think I triggered in you, which is fun. I think one more thing on this, and then I want to clarify some things with the organization you're with and things like that to help people. By the way, I enjoyed reading some of the books that, that we got from you guys, and I appreciate it. We'll get to those here in just a moment. But I've always wondered about this identity thing, and I have found myself, this is like another big question that's going to either trigger some people or they're going to go, huh. I found myself over the last few years using the term Christian less and less and using words like follower of Christ, follower of Jesus. I don't even believer, not as much and all of that. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think we're seeing some of that. Maybe it dates back to, oh, I don't know, around 2016 when we had an election and all of a sudden, people were having all these weird things. And then, of course, a couple of years later, when they had this pandemic thing, and 
hard to know who was what and all that type stuff. You seeing people do that a lot or is that normal or is that something odd also? Yeah, I think you're right. We're in such a politicized time frame of our culture and society. And unfortunately, Christians have not done a good job being independent of the two-party system. And we've it breaks my heart that the church, the body of Christ, has found its way and meshed in some ways in different political debates or positioning, which has discredited the gospel and what Jesus has to offer in so many ways, because it's a lose proposition any type time you take a stand politically, because everything's politically charged. And we live in a country with entire systems around, I wouldn't say propaganda, but I would say propaganda, trying to get us to think and click and fear is the tool for that. And both sides, all of us, there was a article, it was by Tim Keller, or it was a podcast by him. It was brilliant. He was talking about the four things he found in scripture, the sanctity of life, of marriage, of justice, and of caring for the poor. And he's like, isn't it interesting? Liberals and conservatives major on two of those and minor on the others. He said, where are the churches that major on all four of those? Like without reservation and just the irony in that divide. It's, oh yeah, the evil one would know that to try to parse the church in the most divisive entanglement, which is politics. And it's a shame, but I think it's so obvious now, like you're talking about, I think we have an opportunity to detangle and it's mission critical. If we see ourselves as Christians, Jesus followers, I, I have a hard time finding a rationalization for the commingling of faith and politics right now because of the divisiveness that politics has. I, I agree. And here's one of the reasons why I kind of like to set things up as either or, which is not, I think there's more nuance in the world than either or, but to me, I think there's God's kingdom and there's the Babylonian system. And I think the political structure is primarily of that Babylonian system. One little example, and I don't want us to get way off in the weeds here, but it is very difficult if you're in the United States of America. And for those listening in, we've got a lot of listeners in India and other places. Y'all probably have similar, really, Robbie, it's possible for someone to care for the unborn and the environment and be part of one party. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? That's sad, isn't it? It's wild. And I'm not even, I'm not trying to state, I'm just say, saying the challenge of the system is really tough. So it, anyway. It, it is hard. And the Keller thing of a church to radically fight for injustice in, in, in groups that are not justly treated to fight for that, as well as serving the poor and caring for the poor radically and for the unborn children at the same time. To even say those things and know you're going to frustrate half the people in your church for either side of those, if you really talked about it objectively, indicates that for way too many people, politics has got a primary seat emotionally than than this way of following Jesus. So back to your original question. Yeah, I found myself using the word as well. Just like mm -hmm. evangelical, conservative, different words are just semantics to describe what. Not a group to me, but a way of how I see 
the world and see eternity and see the answer to what the longings of my heart are, which is the gospel. So whatever words describe that, the good stuff. Yeah, very good. Let's shift some because I want to cover a few things. I wanted to say that I had written out my short bio entry that I did at the beginning before I finished up last night. I'm going to hold it up for those that are watching. I read The Cure for Groups, which is a great fun book to read. I was able to click through it. And then I also have, and we'll talk more about these later, The Embark, which is the, the companion study guide that goes with it. But I got to the your bio that was written at the end of this book, Robbie. And this one's, I kind of like this one better. But I didn't use it because I didn't shift and all that. But this it starts off with that title that we talked about earlier, which is Robbie is the president and CEO of Trueface, which I'm going to ask you about. This is where this is leading. I'm about to ask you about Trueface. Lives in Dawsonville, Georgia, which I thought was cool. My dad passed away in December, but he was a huge NASCAR fan. And I don't know if he is the favorite son of Dawsonville. Is he still? Awesome Bill Elliott from Dawsonville was the favorite son. And now it's got to be Chase, his is son. He, does Chase live up that son. way? Does he they have a family compound where they're working on cars all the time and all? <laughs> yeah, they do. For those that don't know, Bill Elliott was one of the most popular NASCAR drivers. My dad loved Bill Elliott. So anyway. But this is one thing that I wanted to point out, and I want to tie this together. Prior to serving at Trueface, Robbie served for seven years at North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, founded by Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley of First Baptist. And I think they're still in one of the top five fastest growing or biggest churches, communities and all. I think North Point still is. Anyway, and you oversaw adult ministry environments and director of men's groups while you were there. That's why. I think it's important with some of the things we're going to be conversing here. And then you also have some other background here. But before we go too much further, by the way, I really did like that's a good bio there at the back of the book there because it kind of concise and all. Before we go too much farther, please tie together because I shared this before we hit record. True Face, what is it? How does it fit in here? Because now I'm looking at all the books and True Face is all over all the books and the podcast, which I listened to some of those yesterday. So help me pull all this together and help the person listening. It's like, man, we like this guy, Robbie. He's cool. He's not a front man for a rock group or he's not a magician or anything out of Vegas. He does some things with this ministry. What's up? Help me out here. Yeah. So True Face was founded probably 28 years ago, 27, 28 years ago by Bill Thrall and Bruce McNichol. They founded it as Leadership Catalyst, focusing on developing the core of a leader. And the core of a leader is found in our, his or her theology and identity, how they see God and how they see themselves rooted in our identity, how we see ourselves that's interconnected to how we see God and how we create environments of trust is an interpersonal relational dynamic of where, sh where shame plays connected to our identity, where character is affected. So they wrote a book called The Ascent of a Leader. And in that, it, it talks about two, two ladders, the competency ladder and the character ladder, and how most of us as leaders don't get derailed or stopped because of character. We get, sorry, competency, we get stopped because of our character limitations and the development of that. Then about 12, so leadership, consulting, and then about 14 years ago, they wrote a book called The Cure. Tagline is, what if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? 
It's an allegorical book, a hundred pager that has incredible theology and identity baked into it as these guys are both pastors. And John Lynch as well, the third guy who wrote the book. And they, it, there's an allegorical book and there's a premise of it that you come to a fork in the road and there's a sign that says this way towards pleasing God and this way towards trusting God. And where those go, pleasing God leads to the room of good intentions and where Christians are doing just fine and doing more for God. And that's more of the equation of more right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness, which a lot of us have low grade. That's what being a Christian means. Now, trusting God looks like humility. That leads to the room of grace where we experience an authentic community and we mature into who God already says we are, which is as righteous sons and daughters of the king. So there's a line in that book that says, do we see ourselves as sinners striving to be saints or as saints who occasionally sin? And that theology baked into that is packed into that book. So I'll get to your actual question of what is true face. So I'm leading men's groups at North Point. I'm doing a leader development pipeline and I read the cure. Somebody gave it to me from these old guys in Phoenix in this ministry called True Face. And it was the most impactful book on my life, giving language to this way of following Jesus. So I infused it into every group at North Point. I bought enough boxes of the book that Bruce McNichol called me one day and he said, who are you? And I was like, I'm a huge fan, Bruce McNichol. So I got to know the guys. They were looking for a new president. And so the board said, hey, we want you to consider doing this, to reimagine an expression of a ministry beyond John, Bill and Bruce, to reach more people in the next generation with this teaching. And so I have just survived four years of founder transition from a me in a message-based ministry from not one guy, but three guys. And God has just blessed it, added favor to it. And really what true face is that I inherited 24, 25 years of intellectual property and brilliant teaching. I'm a praxis guy. I'm a yeah, but how guy. I'm a systems guy. And I was over 800 small groups, which forces you to think transferability of these truths two and three steps removed from you. And over the past few years, that's how the ministry has shifted. You can imagine I inherited this intellectual property. And so that's why we're building grace-based relational discipleship resources, building a toolbox of resources to support whoever's listening, churches, leaders, ministries, because we get stuck. We know about God, but we have a hard time knowing God in our heart, in our lives, because truth does not transform. Trusted truth transforms. And trust is a relational word. God has designed us to grow through the context of relationships. We don't know how to do that well. And so our resources try to help people apply truth in the context of relationships to deepen their relationships with God and others, because that's where Christians are stuck. We don't know how to experience this stuff. We read about like peace and freedom. And so we build small group studies, one-on-one -on -one conversational frameworks. And really a key part of our ministry is a framework for relational discipleship. It's a nine-month group discipleship framework. All of this stuff is free to serve the church to help believers experience deeper relationships with God and others. That was a lot. So you help people get closer to God, right? Y'all resources and tools in place. There, I took so many notes here. This is almost like two episodes of stuff because 
there, there's so much written richness there with all that you said. I mean, there's the spiritual path we could go on. There's the tools and resources. But the thing that jumped out at me first, Robbie, was I want to know more about the transition. This is maybe the executive leadership coach. I work with leaders, leadership teams. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, what was that like stepping in? And was it a transition? Was it an immediate? Was it a thus saith the Lord, so y'all did it? Was there some courtship involved? What was it like? And maybe I'll frame the question this way. Give me a couple of things that were really tough about it, not just on you, but the organization. And then some things that just really went beyond your expectations. There's no doubt they've got great intellectual property. There's got to be some massive spiritual strength and brain power behind that that you stepped into. I know that you've got capability and character. You mentioned it earlier. You've, you've got abilities and talents and all that, but what was really hard about it still may be going on and, uh, and what's going better than expected. It, it has been one of the most challenging leadership seasons of my life because it is hard a message-based ministry. And what I stepped into was really three eclectically gifted guys with personal ministry expressions that were so effective that people said, keep doing that and more of that. So you had a support team helping them do their personal ministry expressions, consulting, speaking, writing, all of which I don't have those skills. And, and people, donors were giving to the impact of the man more so than the plan of the ministry. So a discipleship resourcing, equipping movement-based ministry behind the scenes is not easy to give to. Wells in Africa are way easier to give to. And so I had an advisory team of three mentors sit at my table before I considered this job because I left North Point to come steward this ministry. And they said, yeah, we give you about a 20% chance you'll be there in three years for a couple of different fronts. One, just because you have no money, people, there's all kinds of stuff that's going to go wrong. And Two, because we don't know if you're going to be there because you're wired more entrepreneurially. You love a challenge. You go on. And that segues into a couple of the difficulties and blessings. One of the hardest things was my own issues. I'm built as a sprinter, and I feel like God has asked me to learn to pace as a marathon runner. And this might be my midlife crisis. I turned 40 this year. And it feels like God was saying, Robbie, I want you to run a marathon. And I'm going to give you a tenth of a mile direction at a time. And I've been praying differently, thinking differently. But the most disorienting thing has is that typically I'm a visionary strategist guy. I'm like, oh, give me 90 days. I'll come up with a sexy two-pager, you know, where we're going, mission, vision, strategy, all that stuff. And I haven't had it for four years, Tim. It's been like God has been, which I don't know how to tie my shoes without seeing the strategic outcomes of it on a three to five year horizon. So God's, I've been doing like the next right thing. And I know when I see strategy clearly and I know when I don't see it. And this is the first season of my life. I know I haven't known what that looks like because the board said, reimagine an expression of the ministry to reach more people in the next generation. I haven't seen that cle clearly, but it's been a wild practice of trust at a deeper level of God, I'll do this next right thing even though it doesn't make sense, I don't see how the dots connect and the next right thing and the next right thing. And the hindsight of that is just been, it's been so humbling to watch where it's like, God, 
I'm just along for the ride. What do I do today? What's the next right thing you have for me? And that has been the richest principle that God's been teaching me through that. And the struggle in that and the difficulty is a 25-year startup where tons of impact in deep emotional personal ways to like donors who have been impacted by these different resources, tools, experiences, and the board saying reimagine that. What that means is two things. Narrow the focus of who we are, why we exist as a ministry, because I'm moving from impact of men to a ministry plan. And in order to narrow the focus, I'm going to kill off things slowly. And so I'm going to disappoint just about everybody who's donors. And it's going to change is always hard on a good day for people. And that's what the board asked me to do. And so just the expectations, which are deeply personal and emotional for people that I disappointed over the three years, that was one of the harder components of it. Yeah. And plus let's go ahead and throw in the mix. So you've got, it's not a, it's really not a startup. You're saying it's a 25 year startup. It is, but it isn't. Right. There's a board that's in place. I'm sure there's employees, there's resources, there's, there's the, the intellectual property. You yeah. mentioned the word steward, which I appreciate it because that's the way I'm leaning into defining leadership and all. It's just, we're a steward over what we've been gifted with. But this is where I'm going to, we're going to dig just a little bit more here because this is Tim learning as much about me. I turned 60 this year. You're turning 40. I got a, I got a 20 year extra bumps and bruises and stuff on you here. When we say that word trust, I think it's one of the things that we struggle with the most because I think we have conditional trust. People that are wired to be strategists, visionaries, things like that. My wife and I even had a discussion about it this morning. I think that we trust as long as we're able to control a part of our world. Yep. It's conditional trust. And so I'm finding that there are groups of people like you, like me and others that are going through this experience. And I'm going to say something and you could respond. I'm wondering if there's a group of us that are being prepared for something really cool that's coming up. And when I say cool, it may not be that cool. Because I keep running into people very similar to Robbie. If you and I, if we were in our prayer time this morning and we felt like there was some business idea, ministry idea that I got and you and I were talking about it and we said, hey, listen, let's do this and let's pull a couple of people in to help. By about the end of the day, I'm guessing we could have some plans in place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But whose plans would they be? So what I'm going to ask you to do is give yourself a grade. How are you doing with that trust scale, with that turning it over, with that? We are so wired to be, if it is to be, it's up to me. I'm yep. controlling, I'm strategy, I'm a visionary and all that kind of stuff. So give me, give us some stuff. There's a lot, because let me tell you, there's so many people listening in, Robbie, that they're in the same situation. This is where this redefining success comes in that we like to talk about here. Because success would typically mean the financial aspects of it, the measurements, the things we can measure, the things we have control over, things like that. So give us a little bit more. I think how I answer this is important to that question. Today, I am at an 8.5. 
that's because this morning I have, I've got something coming up in two days that's really heavy and I've been carrying. And today I spent some time really processing and talking to God. What do you want me to know about this? What am I carrying? What am I afraid of? Kind of those rhythms in my prayer life this morning. And an indicator of that was one in my time, what I felt like God was saying, but two is the peace and the freedom that I've been carrying in my bones about this. That's different today than it was yesterday, which is where I'm doing pretty good. It's not the best I've been, but today is better. And I think the beauty of trust is it has to be just today. I can't trust tomorrow. I can't trust yesterday. And I think trust, if I can give some definitions to how core this is, your question, which you're alluding to. Pride, a lot of theologians say pride is the chief sin. I think of pride as simply says, I can. That looks like fear and control in my life. And as an eight Enneagram, high drive, high achiever, firstborn son, I'm good at this. So I wake up every day way more comfortable to be in control, which is a byproduct of pride, which says I can. And everything in the world tells us that is a strength. I can, you can, pride looks like fear and control. Now, the opposite, this way of following Jesus, humility is the chief virtue, says I can't, which simply means if I can't, I will let God meet those needs in me, do what he did to redeem me, reconcile me, be Christ in me. And so trust is an action word and it's a relational word that means to let. So in humility, I can't, therefore I will trust God and you, my brother, and let you love me. Let God carry my needs of my stress about Thursday. Speak affirmation into me this morning about even if I fail, what does that mean? What is my identity? Let you ask me questions and be present with you and process this stuff out loud. As we all have need, then we let God and others meet our needs. And that's a super theological overview with some handles, but that trust thing is daily. And it is simply means to let God and others meet needs because love or the true face guys that I took over from, they define love as the process of giving and receiving of needs being met. So the process of meeting needs. So love, you can love me by asking good follow-up questions, by giving me attention because I have needs of being seen and soothed and safe and secure. And just this conversation, we can experience and practice love as new friends which we can't do if we don't trust each other because you can't love me if I don't trust you and vice versa. So that's a deep rabbit hole of theology. Go read the cure. It's all unpacked there a little bit more articulately. Yeah, I like that. That's good. And one of the things for me that I just try to remind myself is that the world doesn't revolve around me because there are times that I really would like to think that it does. What does it do? This is just one quick sidebar maybe is when somebody has eight kids, six boys, two girls married, is that preparation for this trust or is it a hindrance? Is it a challenge? Yes. And the fan. Yeah. All the gift of parenting, whether we have one or eight is we know we, I at least wake up focusing on myself and selfishness and the world revolving around me. And the, God knew that. And the gift of parenting and marriage is that we get a practice 
love, which is others focused and sacrificial. And we do that with one kid and eight kids. Yeah. So tell me, go ahead. Tim, I'm, I want to circle back because I it took me a little bit this morning to this founder transition because there's a lot of people listening in different phases of transitioning responsibility. And there's a couple of principles that I learned from Bruce and Bill that I didn't verbalize, that I just took notes on to verbalize. Is that okay if I go there? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So let, I, I want to kind of preface this. These are some principles that when there's a founder transition will be beneficial and helpful for anyone that might be going through or experiencing something like that, correct? Which I think can be relatable to all of us as parents in any of our roles, because we are all in the process of leadership in different circles of influence that God has us in. And I will say that Bruce McNichol was the president that I took over from. The number one attribute of a leader successfully handing over the baton, passing on is humility, which we just talked about, so I won't go there. And Bruce McNichol has been a case study in humility to me, which is why without that, I wouldn't be here four years into a founder transition. And Bruce McNichol is still on our team full-time. John, Bill, and Bruce fired themselves when I came on. And so I could start with a clean slate of staff, which was a brilliant move by the board and by Bruce McNichol. They fired everybody and let me rehire the staff. And I invited Bruce McNichol, the old president, back on for a season of six months and said, for some transition purposes, I will hire you back for six months. And we've been talking about it every six months since. And the pros and the, his humility is just unbelievable. Now, back up a little further of where, why you can get to this point to be thinking about transferring of influence, whether you're a founder, particularly as a founder or a successor or for any of us in our roles. Bill Thrall, I was talking about Andy. Bill Thrall was a mentor before I came to Trueface, one of the founders of Trueface. And we were processing Andy Stanley in transition. Charles couldn't, he couldn't hand over to Andy. So Andy and Louis Giglio left in their 30s as leaders to start Northpoint. Now, Andy and the founders are getting into their 60s working through transitions. So I was processing with Bill. And Bill Thrall said this. He said, whether an organization can transition and get into a new S cycle of growth is, and he said this, whether or not the leader can entrust and empower the next generation early and soon enough. Whether the leader can entrust and empower the next generation early and soon enough. Entrust means I don't get it. I don't see your plan. I don't agree with your plan because I would have already done it if I thought that was the best plan, by the way, because I'm the leader. Therefore, I don't agree with it, don't understand it, but I trust you even if I don't see it and get it. And I'm going to empower you. Here's the keys and the cash and the staff to do that. That takes so much humility of a leader because we're protecting and stewarding what we built. And so to entrust and empower somebody with a different vision is so stinking scary that it takes so much humility to do right. And most have a hard time doing that. And I left North Point with a buddy. He stepped into a president role at a 25-year ministry. I stepped into a president role and he resigned about nine months ago. And it was the typical, terrible 80% body bag job type thing. And there was another principle I learned in watching him. 
can a board and a leader, what are they really looking for and do they actually know? Because there's really two big differences. In transition, and this is for any of us as we hand over our roles at work or wherever, are we looking for somebody to manage what we did and how we did it? Or are we looking for somebody to reimagine? Now, that's a different person. And sometimes boards will go, we want somebody to reimagine, but really they want somebody to manage. And that founder is really wanting somebody to manage what they built because that's why they built it the way they did, because it was the best way. And so we just need you to manage it and not reimagine. And True Face was actually, they didn't know when I first started talking to them. I think they were looking for somebody to manage. And then, and so I actually said no the first time they talked to me about the job. Two months later, they, a lot happened at North Point and at True Face. And by the time I talked to Bruce two months later, he had a posture of reimagining, of trusting and empowering. And so I knew for me, that's what I needed. I needed to, I'm a disruptor. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a terrible fit for somebody to manage. Don't hire me. I will fail. But if it's reimagined, I'm a good fit for that. So I think it's important for all of us in our roles to wrestle with those two things. What are we actually looking for and what does the organization need? Mm, that's good. There's a word you used early on when I asked you about true face. You used the word steward. And one of the ways in my mind I define the word steward, I've done some, I guess, some teaching and some things on this, is that I think that the culture that we're currently in, which is, let's just say, first world, westernized, whatever, Americanized culture is, we really do have an ownership mentality. We think we own things. You own the house. I think I own this RV. I think I own this, these, this equipment. We think we own organizations. We think we own people. We think we own staff. We think we own churches, church buildings, all that type stuff. I don't think we do. Now, my paradigm is this. In 08, we had over 100 pieces of real estate. We had valued at whatever. We had other companies. And by 2013, all of that was poof, vanished. So I thought I owned, so I kind of learned the hard way. Not everyone does, <laughs> Robbie. But see, I think we're really just stewards. I think almost everything. You just mentioned eight children. You don't own them. <laughs> mm. You're just stewards. And, and then here's how I help my definition. And I'll say this, and then you can respond and give thoughts. I think a steward's primary responsibility is to take care of something and to return it in a better condition than when they received it. Now, I could probably argue against that in some situations, but to me, it sounds like y'all are close to having something like that. There were some founders, they were stewards. Maybe they thought they were, maybe they didn't. You've been moved into, a, you've got titles and all that we talked about earlier, but to, to me, the titles aren't as significant as the heart and the mindset. And I see you in that steward role in trust and power. You don't own though. Mm. Anyway, what are your thoughts there? Is that on track? Does that make sense? Does it fit? I love that. And I think that gives words to the strategic approach where I want it to be true face, not Robbie Angle Ministries. I don't, I want to speak, I call it true face because that is a frame, that's grace-based relationship resources that are independent of a man. It's more of a posture that's transferable. 
But tell me about, help me unpack for the leaders, the difference between steward versus owner. How do I lead differently if I'm a steward, if I see myself as a steward in leadership? Here's the, uh, you gave the great example of this founder's transition. There was a period of time where they wanted you to manage. An owner is looking for a manager. And then there was a period of time where they began to entrust and empower and they began releasing and they allowed. Now there was obviously multiple parties here, I guess. You had to have the right mindset too, because listen, someone like you or me could come in and say, okay, listen, we're going to toss this thing out. We're going to, I'm going to put my stamp on everything, but I'm sure you had to really approach it with you have your egos, there's people involved, even people that are extremely humble. And so here's the, and this is this, this is where, and this is probably going to lead into our next phase of conversation. One of the things I find, and you did a great podcast episode where I think it was titled, don't call me pastor. You were talking about that word pastor. I think that what we do is we position people to have the illusion of ownership and there comes a time when we have it, we're pure and everything's great and we're doing the things we believe that God's instructing us and maybe we are, but then we get to this place where we start protecting, this is very important right here, protecting what we perceive that we own. And when we move from that pureness to protection is when we start seeing some of the ugly stuff that we see in church world. Business world, it's ugly, but it, it sometimes looks different and it doesn't hurt some of us as much as it does. And when I say hurt, I don't mean like me personally. It just hurts me to see it. It hurts me to see some of the stuff that goes on in quote unquote air quotes here, church world. So does that help a little bit? Does that give a little bit of context that we can have some fun with the conversation? Yeah, I, lo I love that because yeah, ownership it, yeah, you're speaking of ownership from a lens of if that leads to protecting, this is mine. It's about me, which is pride. And protecting sounds a lot like fear and control, a byproduct of what I can do, what's in my responsibility. And humility and trust feels more like stewardship. Yeah, the semantics are important. If I'm stewarding this, then the outcomes are not mine to fear because I'm trusting the outcomes with I'll do my best and God, that's all I can do. It's a stewarding is also focused on the present. Ownership projects into the future, which causes anxiety. Stewardship focuses on the present, which sounds healthier. And so, I, yeah, I'm thinking as you're processing this as a steward of my wife, uh, a steward as the parent of my kids a steward of this gospel of grace of which I have the Holy Spirit in me as a steward of the kingdom, as a steward of an expression of teaching of the kingdom called true face, that's a light yoke. That's a joy today to steward those things. And that feels a lot more peace and light yoke and less weight of me for feeling like I need to figure it out or else. So yeah, yeah that's well, an encouragement to me personally today. Yeah, good, because we put so much pressure on ourselves. We got a great example of it. Jesus, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, those were, and you know what? This is my biggest, not my biggest, but one of my biggest things that bother me is that, that I would not want to be grouped into that Pharisee hypocrite category. 
And Robbie, unfortunately, I think, even though I'm a, I'm a believer, call myself Christian and all that, I believe that often in my life, I probably could have been put in that category because of the lack of trust, control, things like that. Yeah. To transition a little bit, because I love the conversation though, by the way, <laughs> I love this. To transition a bit, you guys with TrueFace, you're providing resources and you, this is, I'm, I hope I'm not connecting too many dots here. You tell me because of the role you had at North Point over small groups, you mentioned 800. When you stepped into an organization that already had some intellectual property, it seems to me like you, one of your roles has been maybe marrying those two somewhat. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I think transferability practically systems and people read like people come into true face. We paint a compelling vision of what Jesus makes possible in relationships of depth with him and others in order to experience grace, experience high trust environments that were made for, that we long for. And that we ask the question, yeah, but how? Okay, so I read these books. I want that. How do I find it? I'm the how guy. And so I was giving them a hard time before I took the job. And I was like, hey, you need to equip us with tools for us to experience this way of following Jesus in community that you're talking about in Bo's Cafe, in the Curan Parents, in this, right, I'm reading everything you guys are putting out. Tell us how to do that. And they said, you can figure that out. And then fast forward a year or two, I end up being the president. So I was like, well, I guess I got to figure that out now. Easier said than done. And that's why we're building tools. So an example is the nine month true face journey. You, if, we want to fulfill the great commission and go and make disciples. For those of us who get grace, love Jesus, we want to pour our cup into others. But if we lined up a hundred men and women listening to this from a hundred different churches who love Jesus, get grace, want to pour their cup into others and said, how's your disciple making going? We would say terrible because we don't know what to do and who to do it with. And so a good tool is not prescriptive. Check this, learn this. That stuff drives me crazy. And that's the way of, like when I see discipleship resources and it's filmed a blank, learn this, that's a, an old framework that more right behavior, less wrong behavior, learning equals godliness. That is not true. And that smells a little bit like religion and the Pharisees to me. And how to take principles and marry them with best practices is an art. It's an art and a science, an art of how we gather with intentionality with the science underpinning of great teaching, that helps us know what to do. So for those hundred people, we built a framework where it's nine months, once a month for three hours. And this is what you do in between. This is how you can think about how you meet together for three hours with a general framework. And that framework looks more like, here's some good content, here are good questions to ask. Not teach, not fill in the blank, but process in the sake of authentic community, which is built with intentionality in the early months, and to make it easier for people to go, oh, from training to equipping and it's all accessible. That's an example of an environment and a tool that is conducive for people to process and experience these truths at greater depth. And on a lighter note, we did a true face conversation. It's eight conversations to take a step deeper in your relationship with God and one other person. Because you and I hang out, 
we meet at RV campground and we have lunch and we're like, man, I love Tim. And like, if we were in town, we would be boys. But the no man's land between our first meeting and us being brothers is brought with us having no idea how to get there, how to progress into depth and intimacy. And so we said, hey, let's just come up with a conversational framework so that I can go, hey, Tim, every Tuesday on the drive home from work at 445, you want to talk? We'll watch this five minute video and then have three questions that we'll talk about together. That would be a tool to make it easier to process these truths in a relational setting. Yeah, I tell people this all the time. One of the reasons that I do this, the podcast, is so that I can have uninterrupted, focused conversations with people like Robbie. It's because in our normal day-to-day world, we're like, hey, how's the weather in Dawsonville? Oh, the weather's great. Tell me about Bill Elliott. Oh, yeah, awesome Bill from Dawsonville. Yeah, Yeah. how's RV life? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And it's very light. It's very fluffy. There's not a lot of depth to it where I get the mic, I get somebody like you on mic, and we could dive into ownership versus stewardship and have a cool conversation. I'm going to, I wanted to be, when I first started reading through the stuff, and I could tell that it was geared towards group type things. I had a lot of thoughts come to mind and I know we're mature here. So we could have this, we could have this back and forth. I've been around churches. I visited North point. I've gone, when I'm in Atlanta, usually I'll pop in and go to passion city with Louis church. And I love me a big old mega church. I really do. However, I I do think that there's challenges with structure. I'm an industrial engineer from Georgia Tech, and so structure and all. I do wonder if we're fighting a battle that's really tough. You saw 800 groups there, and you obviously see some value in these small groups in this small group setting. Tell me, Tim, who's skeptical, is like, man, are you sure small groups? Is that just like another program in a church? Or why would we want to go down this process of being in groups? Is that a fair question? Oh yeah, that's a good question. And I'll point to a principle. Relationships lead to growth, not groups. So relate, we are designed to grow and mature through the context of relationships. Jesus defines discipleship as by the way you love one another in John 13, 35. By this, they'll know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Love is a relational dynamic. And so churches, let alone mega churches, but any church of a hundred and more is not a conducive environment for relationships, which are catalysts for spiritual growth, because the corporate gathering is more conducive for teaching and corporate worship. So that means the key element when it comes to formation discipleship is what are the environments for relationships that are catalysts for growth? Most churches call that small group, life group, cell group, whatever, which is right because we're gathering. All that is, is a consistency and intentionality in a size that's conducive to be more known and therefore more loved. So you try, you agree with me at that point, right? Yeah, I'm still with you here. You're moving me in your direction. All right. So if that's the case, then that's not the broken piece. What's broken is that most small groups are terrible. And so we got to ask the question, why? If this is the right principle-driven framework for spiritual formation growth, then what's happening? And that's where 
that is very difficult because I got a master. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I got a master's in counseling. We spent two years studying evidence-based practices on what best practices in a group therapy session lead to growth and change and what don't. And then we get into a small group, which is even more important, similar principles of gathering together for the sake of change, but in regards to spiritual formation. And we just go, oh, here's a, hey, anybody want to lead? Here's a t-shirt. Here's a 60-minute PowerPoint on how to have a hard conversation. Go for it. That drives me crazy. And no wonder groups are terrible because we don't know principles that of best practices of the art of facilitation to lead a good group. And so that's where one of the first things I did at Trueface is write a book for small group leaders, which you read called The Cure for Groups. Those are the principles that differentiate great leaders from lame leaders. And that is only 25% of the equation of a small group being transformational. 60% is the health of the leader, his or her theology and identity. So 60% of whether a group is great is connected to the health of the leader. That's not in the cure for groups because that takes a lifetime of growth. And I would recommend the cure to read that for the core of who you are, how you see God. Now, once you have a right theology and identity, to equip somebody with the best practices is, I would say, 25% of the equation of whether a group sucks or not. And so the five, so the cure for groups unpacks those five principles that I saw great leaders do differently than lame leaders. And the last 15% is just chemistry and stuff you can't control anyways into whether a group is successful or not. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's develop a depth of discipleship, like through the true face journey, reading the cure to how we see God in ourselves. Then let's step into leading a group, to, which is a right environment to grow, connect relationally and grow spiritually. But let's think best practices, go read the cure for groups, use Embark to launch your group, that kind of stuff. That's why we can't miss out on groups because the principle's right, the application's off. I do think this is one thing that I am willing to admit. No, I actually, this is very obvious. Division, lack of relationship, lack of interaction, lack of intentionality, lack of quiet time, all those type things. I do believe they're a tool of the enemy. I think we make it real easy on the enemy to do that. And so this is going against the grain to have relationships with people. But, and I do want to say, I read the book cover to cover. I read The Cure. Like I said earlier, I'll hold it up here for those. And I've got dog ears, some highlights. And I do agree with you. I guess what I really want is some of these tools because Robbie, I've been involved with these where, and you're going to identify why I've got a, maybe a little bit of a sour attitude. We're going to do life together. We're going to watch some ball games. We're going to, we're going to hang out. We're going to do things. This is a flaw of mine. Probably. I don't hang out. Yep. I don't, I'm, I bet you don't either. I bet, I bet, just, hey, Robbie, let's just, let's you and know, I, let's just play a game, man. Let's do a board game together, man. That'd be like a life group, right? Maybe, but maybe my wife would love it. Maybe I would, and I'd be going bonkers. I'd be going, man, hey, Robbie, let's go to the other room here. Let's strategize on something, man. Let's talk about it. So I loved the tools. Give me a couple of things overseeing all those 800 that you did at North Point. We're getting close to having to land this plane, by the way. Give me a couple of things 
that you learn from that experience that I know that I know a lot of this is the process and all that we see in the book, but you got more reps than the average person. Some of us have been in two or three small groups, so we've got whatever. Give a couple of big picture as we kind of start wrapping up and then we'll start telling people how they can connect and get some of your stuff. I'll give you two things. The first is nothing matter. What is the quality and quantity of the leaders to lead? And are you willing to invest deeply and relationally in developing future and potential leaders in your church? Go to truefacejourney.com. That's all free. It's a framework I've seen at Transformational. And I'm leading a group every year the rest of my life. And I've led eight years worth of these groups. My wife and I are investing in four couples in their 20s right now. I Me mean, once a month, three hours. That, that They will lead differently as a result of that nine-month leader development pipeline called the True Face Journey. This, so yeah, focus on the quality of the leader is the one thing. The second thing for specifically, I'll just tailor off of what you just said in regards to expectations. Five core components of a transformational group. The first one is picking the destination, determining the destination of your group. All of us get into a small group with differing expectations of relationally and spiritually of what we hope to get out of this. We're given 60, 90 minutes a week we better verbalize and clarify why we're meeting because you and I are not better or worse than our wives who would want to just get together and play board games. However, the difference in frustration and disappointment is the difference between expectations and reality. So a best practice of leadership is early in a group, determine your destination, have everybody in the group verbalize your expectations, what you're what a win would look like after two years of weekly meeting. Because I assure you, if you don't get a weigh-in in order to buy in, and if you can't verbalize expectations to have agreement as to why you're meeting, there's going to be excuses not to show up and you're going to be disappointed because the gap between your expectations and reality is too big to shrink it. Great leaders, I saw everybody put on the table, what are your relational and spiritual expectations for why you're going to spend 60 minutes a week? And if you and I are in a group and we go, man, we want to process real stuff every week. And, and someone else is nah, I'm not looking for that. That's okay. Either don't get into it, shift, find a middle way. A leader can facilitate through that, but saying it, bringing it to the light will make everybody move in towards each other around aligned destination. So that's a best practice just because you brought it up. That's different. That's a principle of leadership, of an art of leadership, not a, hey, here's how to be a great small group leader in three easy steps. And that's why we wrote the book to, and you read it last night because no one wants to read a book about being a small group leader. So we made it as short, practical and readable as possible. That was our hope. Here's the, here's a really good thing about it that I think should fit for anyone leading anything. And that is, there's some great tools in it. I think there's some great questions. In fact, partially what I highlighted the most were just some of the questions. And the reason why I think that's important, Robbie, is the reason why we're even having to do this and what I'll say is a little more of a formal structure is that we, I'm talking about we, society, culture, whatever, we're really bad at having conversations. We're really bad at having relationships more than surface light, fluffy type stuff. And I do think that we need tools for it because you can't trust someone. 
if you don't know them. And I think that's probably the underlying message that I've heard in this entire conversation, going back to when I even asked you for to do the intro, is you mentioned the word trust, is that you can't trust if you don't know. And the reason that I like the book and I like the process is that it builds trust in settings that, is it a neighborhood? Is it a church setting? I don't know that I really care. I don't know if y'all do or not. To me, it's virtual if it's all around the world. But if it's building more trust, then we've got a more mature people. And with mature people, then good things happen. So that's my little preaching on that. Who is this really for? I don't know if I just spoiled that for you, but who is this really for? It's for a small group leader. Okay. So specifically in a church setting or? Any type environment. There's principles of leadership, a team leadership that you will pick up. There are correlations between leadership team Uh leading at work and small group leader that are real similar. The cure is for anybody. The cure is the teaching of theology. The cure for groups is for a small group leader. And in ARC is the study guide for an entire small group to go through and lay a foundation with those five components, like determining your destination and verbalizing expectations, that kind of thing. Sure. All right, Robbie, we, you may have mentioned it just a second ago. We'll include things down in the notes, but where do you want to send somebody that wants more info, wants to check things out, either Robbie or Trueface? Where do they need to go? Just say it verbally here so that people know. You can listen to the Trueface podcast or go to trueface.org are the best two places. Nice. Yeah. I power listened to about five or six episodes yesterday. Loved them. We didn't even get to that. Didn't even get to discuss that. What a great conversation. I've enjoyed this. And I almost feel like we need to do like a version two, version three. Maybe we need a group. I don't know. Maybe we need to walk through a process here, Robbie. Let's go. Hey, Robbie, we're seek, go create three words that we use to describe some things we're doing. I'm going to let you choose one of those words that just resonates. It jumps out at you more than the other two. And why is my final question before I wrap up here? I love that question. What resonates right now is create. We don't think we're enough, have what it takes to lead, invest in others. One-on-one, one-on-a-few, different levels of depth, intentionality. Do it. We're all looking for somebody with the courage to pursue us relationally. Be the one with courage to pursue somebody in your life. And we got plenty of tools to make that easier and more intentional, but go pursue somebody because it takes courage and vulnerability. And we're all waiting for somebody to do that for us. Nice. Very good. Robbie Engel, thank you for joining us here at Seek Go Create. If you've been listening in, I'm going to encourage you to do a few things. You're on a podcast right now, most likely, maybe on YouTube. Go jump over to the True Face podcast, listen in there, because if you're listening here, I believe you will enjoy that one also. I think there'll be good complimentary podcast. If you're on YouTube, I'm sure that they've got some resources there too that you could check out. Read the book. I think if you're a leader, the book that I read, The Cure for Groups, is a valuable tool. And especially if you're going to be associating or doing some things with groups, get a, get a hold of that. Something that I love to ask, and I do believe this conversation has had that power, is share this episode with people. Just take a screenshot, share it. If you're on social media or something like that, share it. If you're watching one of the clips, share it. I think people will get a lot of value from just listening in. Thanks for listening in. I appreciate you. What a great conversation this has been. We have new episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.